You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 487 of this podcast. Today is a beautiful fall Saturday morning in Greeley, Colorado. It is October 22nd, 2022, 10-22-2022, and we've got a statement by evangelicals and Catholics together from First Things Magazine for their November issue to go through, and there's a lot there. It's uh, very chock full with uh, you know really at its root this question of government as God separation of church and state how should Christians relate to civil authority and politics which as you know if you are familiar with me at all if you've been listening for any time at all if you know me personally if you (laughs) have been around me or heard secondhand about me, you know, that is very much uh, my interest and what I feel a calling to delve into and to explore and to make sense of in our day. But first, a couple of items in the news. One, real brief, according to Not The Bee, Elon Musk plans to lay off 75% of current Twitter employees. That is pretty astounding, and you know what? I'm good with it. I'm good with it. I say buy Twitter, turn the uh, main headquarters building into a homeless shelter, lay off 75% of the workforce, and start over. Basically, take the platform in a even-handed uh, direction where there's not going to be censorship of political rivals Uh, online for the left. There's going to be a place for conservatives and classic liberals and uh, religious freedom advocates and civil liberties advocates and independence to be able to speak freely. And for those who are critical in foreign countries of repressive regimes uh, to be able to speak freely And for those here in the U.S. who are concerned about the so-called progressive agenda, but really increasingly totalitarian bend of Democrats and those on the left, I say, by all means, let go of 75% of the workforce and make it into a free speech platform online. That doesn't mean that I think everything that people might say Uh, Freely should be without consequence, but it is to say, I think the cure for what ails bad ideas, uh, humanly speaking, is free and open discourse. If you've got bad ideas that are lurking in the shadows, let's bring those bad ideas out and let's have a civil conversation where people can debate back and forth, really, truly. And let's not amplify certain voices that we like. Uh, using a platform that claims to be, or at least originally claimed to be, uh, a public square 
let's not amplify certain voices artificially while muting other voices or shadow banning other voices just because we don't like what they have to say. We don't like the pesky questions that they're raising. We don't like the points that they're trying to make. We disagree with their conclusions. No, no, debate them. Debate them. As long as they're not threatening to assassinate uh, folks on there, they're not calling for uh, the you know murder of their political rivals, let them debate the ideas. Let them talk about what they think uh, should be the plan moving forward. And if they can persuade folks that way, well, then fine. Or if they can be debated out of their bad ideas, uh, all the better. But I don't see how we can convince people and change their minds just by silencing them. That's just not a good way to go about it. A man who is persuaded against his will is of the same mind still. And that's important to note with regards to Elon Musk acquiring Twitter, hopefully, I hope. And uh, in other news, if you haven't heard, Kanye West is supposedly going to make a bid for Parler. So that's fun that Elon Musk and Kanye West, uh, both being buds, uh, being pals, friends, and both having much more of a independent streak, to say the least, both having much more of a, if you will, classic liberalism uh, strain, if not a conservative, uh, increasingly conservative strain uh, in their thought processes and in their worldview and then in their personal philosophy. Uh, you know, if both of them acquire uh, those two platforms and there is a space for free and open discourse online, I think that's a really good thing. But speaking of <laughs> the opposite and what the stakes are, really, if you don't have freedom of speech in the public square, open discourse, debating ideas back and forth, cross-examining. You know, the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him, as Proverbs makes clear and uh, promises and assures us. Xi Jinping had his predecessor, Hu Jintao, removed from the CCP summit on live TV, reporting by Not the Bee brought it to my attention initially, but the Daily Wire also has uh, a story on this from Greg Wilson, published this morning. Uh, Xi Jinping is, many people believe, making a bid to be declared supreme leader of China for life. There was a restriction on how many terms a uh, person in his position could hold. Uh, that limit was two. And he is pretty obviously trying to remove that, go for a third, but actually really, for all intents and purposes, make himself supreme leader for life. And so there's a lot of speculation as to why Hu Jintao was removed in front of everyone. He was sitting right next to Xi Jinping. He was president of China from 2003 to 2013. And if you watch the video, it's very disturbing. It's very odd and unsettling, but he essentially uh, doesn't want to go. He's confused, pretty evidently confused as to why he's being removed. Uh, Xi Jinping reportedly was uh, about to deliver a speech on the future of China and what the next steps are and kind of a State of the Union address uh, China style 
And Hu Jintao being removed like that in front of everyone for the whole world to see, for everyone in the conference to see, but also for the whole world to see, is turning a lot of heads this morning. And a lot of folks are saying this is really uh, symbolic. We don't quite know what it's symbolic of in details, but it's probably a uh, political purge uh, very openly that has been going on behind the scenes. It's now going to be much more overt as Xi Jinping is uh, making himself effectively emperor of China, a new emperor over the Chinese Communist Party. But it's curious, if you really are one of these idealistic uh, communist revolutionaries at heart, it's curious to note that communism uh, just doesn't flat work. It, it's just, it just doesn't work. Um, communism, every time it's been tried, always goes here. It always ends up with one powerful leader, ruthless dictator at the very top, making all the choices and uh, living in luxury like a king, like an emperor, in the name of the people, supposedly. As the representative of the people, he has to be enshrined in all this power and wealth. And really, it's a, it's a word game. Whatever you want to call him, whatever you want to say the ideals are, at the end of the day, it's really about getting wealth and power for himself. Mao Zedong uh, was just the same way. Communism was a means to an end. It was a useful tool to get himself all power in China and to eliminate all rivals. And if you check out the report from Jesse James, so-called, that's a pseudonym, I assume, uh, over at Not The Bee, he has linked a video from uh, several years back of Christopher Hitchens talking about Saddam Hussein's 1979 purge of political rivals and Hitchens talks through several other political purges that have happened in uh, the past 100 to 150 years, which we don't have quite so well documented, but Saddam Hussein's was pretty overt and very disturbing as well. Uh, essentially, he had uh, this big conference in which a political rival of his, who had obviously been arrested, tortured, and was speaking under duress, to uh, the assembled political leaders there in Iraq, uh, this guy basically gets up and gives uh, a confession that he was plotting treason and all that, and he you know, begs to be executed for his crime. And then he proceeds to name men who are in the room who were accomplices. And one by one, as he names them, Saddam Hussein's thugs go and forcibly remove those men. And according to Hitchens narration, which uh, you know, I won't try to replicate here, but you can go check it out. As this is happening, every other man in the room starts to panic with a kind of animal terror. And then eventually you have all these men standing up and falling all over themselves to declare their allegiance to Saddam Hussein. And the next thing that Saddam Hussein does is after all of the men who have been named by this guy who's begging to be executed 
for treason uh, have been removed from the room. Saddam Hussein orders the half who is still there to go on outside where the traitors, supposed traitors, but really political rivals, uh, have been taken. And uh, they're all handed guns and they are told to shoot and execute these men that they had just been sitting next to. And essentially what that does is that initiates all of the men who are remaining uh, as um, you know, basically accomplices with Saddam Hussein in the elimination of all political dissent in Iraq. Xi Jinping may be doing a very similar thing with this public spectacle. Time will tell. But it would not be surprising to me if this is the last we hear of Hu Jintao. If the next thing you find out, uh, he is just gone and he passed away or he's just never heard about or from or of again. He's just disappeared. And the Soviets definitely did similar things where they photoshopped. I mean, basically the uh, early uh, forms, manual forms of Photoshop, uh, Soviet propagandists engaged in to remove people who had been unpersoned and disappeared by Stalin. Pictures, old, old pictures uh, of him with certain men who had fallen out of favor or who he came to suspect as threats to his power were one by one not just removed from public life or from existence or from life at all, uh, but then also in reverse, they were removed from photos until it was basically just Stalin. Stalin was the only figure who was left in those photos. And again, tying this into what Musk plans to do with laying off 75% of uh, Twitter's workforce That's the big concerning thing with regards to TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, Google, and Twitter, to name the big players right now. That's the big concern, is that it is too easy to unperson and disappear people from the public square, from being able to engage in the public discourse, from being able to question what's going on or draw attention to certain things that are not well known, Uh, evidence, for instance, of wrongdoing. How do you have uh, accountability in the fifth estate if independent journalism is not allowed, dissent is not allowed, free speech is not allowed? These are very, very important questions that we as Americans need to be at the fore of answering in a principled way, in a God-honoring way. And we as Christian Americans especially have a duty before God to grapple with to speak to, to bring God's word to bear on, and to testify to the truth regarding. But that all leads us into this statement by evangelicals and Catholics together in the upcoming, soon-to-be-released issue of First Things magazine. Fear God, Honor the Emperor is the title, and uh, it's about 5,000 words long, very chock-full of important statements which need to be reckoned with. And this was, I'll give full props once again to J.P. Chavez for having shared it with me. This was an article, I guess, or essay or uh, piece, link, uh, whatever you want to call it, 
that uh, JP sent me earlier this week. He asked me what my thoughts were on it. I was finishing up my time at Chevron and my first read through, I think I didn't do it justice. And so I wanted to revisit it today with it being Saturday and uh, us being through biblical training group lecture three last night, a Christian guide to theology or a guide to Christian theology rather. But first off, before we delve into it and uh, pay greater attention on something of a third pass-through for me, perhaps or probably a first pass-through for you, if you haven't read it yet, a little bit about evangelicals and Catholics together and uh, a preview of another episode I want to do soon, maybe tomorrow, we'll see, regarding the inception of this group and what to make of it, what should we think of it, how should we relate to uh, such uh, organizations and institutions coming to be in, in recent decades. According to Wikipedia, Evangelicals and Catholics Together is a 1994 ecumenical document signed by leading evangelical and Catholic scholars in the United States. The co-signers of the document were Charles Colson and Richard John Newhouse, representing each side of the discussions. It was part of a larger ecumenical rapprochement in the United States that had begun in the 1970s with Catholic evangelical collaboration and in later parachurch organizations, such as Moral Majority, founded by Jerry Falwell at the urging of Francis Schaeffer and his son Frank Schaeffer. The statement is written as a testimony that spells out the need for Protestants and Catholics to deliver a common witness to the modern world at the eve of the third millennium. It draws heavily from the theology of the New Testament and the Trinitarian doctrine of the Nicene Creed. It seeks to encourage what is known as spiritual ecumenism and day-to-day ecumenism. And that's all the more I'll say about the organization itself for the purposes of this episode. Uh, When we return to considering evangelicals and Catholics together, it will be to go over that original founding uh, document from 1994. The Christian mission in the third millennium is what that's called. May 1994 is when that was originally published. But without further ado, let's take a look at Fear God, Honor the Emperor from November's issue, this upcoming issue next month. Uh, I'm going to read through selections of this. It's 5,000 words long. I don't know that I'm going to read all of it for you, but I have a notion to read some of the introductory paragraphs and then also to draw on some highlights throughout. And of course, I'll link to this and you can check out the full thing for yourself without my commentary, running commentary as we go. But from the top, and I quote, leaders of the civil rights movement urged resistance to laws that enforced racial discrimination. They appealed to natural law and God's law with the aim of reforming our civic order in accordance with transcendent standards. In our time, the rule of law denies nature and usurps the authority of God, making the powers of this world into the supreme lawgivers. In 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States took political possession of the institution of marriage, redefining it so that men may marry men and women may marry women. The same has been done in other jurisdictions in the West. More recently, the court adopted the view 
that men who wish to be regarded as women and women who want to be seen as men must be accorded protection against discrimination. This refusal to acknowledge nature and recognize divine authority puts Christians and all citizens in a perilous position. For when transcendent truth is denied, whether natural or revealed, the once fitting and proper instruments of civil authority become absolute. They are deified as all-powerful idols. Secularism encourages political absolutism. It removes religious authority from public life. In doing so, it claims to secure neutrality in civic affairs. We are told that this ostensible neutrality brings religious freedom and allows for a social contract based on needs and interests shared by everyone without regard to theological convictions. Yet, secularism's promise has shown itself to be hollow. It is a metaphysical project with political consequences, engaging in soulcraft by another name. A society that makes no reference to God implicitly claims that all goods worth pursuing can be found in this life. Consequently, it sponsors a regime that privileges and at times imposes its purely imminent and this-worldly projects and ambitions. On the one hand, therapeutic ideals of self-invention insist that individually determined projects and modes of self-expression have final authority. And let's just stop right there. Let's just do a, a brief recap on what's being set up here and stated. For one, we have a hearkening back to the civil rights movement and what it was predicated on. And I want to note for you a major distinction between the recent push for social justice vis-a-vis the Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, or Antifa, for instance, and when you peel back the curtain on BLM and Antifa, what you find in comparison with the civil rights movement of decades ago. What you find, as Candace Owens' documentary, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, points out, is a lot of the money that has been donated to BLM actually ends up going towards LGBTQ and especially transgender-promoting organizations and movements. That's what you find behind BLM is trained Marxists and radical gender theory and the deconstruction of the nuclear family and the Western notion of heteronormativity. What you find is an assault on the patriarchy and the idea that gender, that sex, is something which God has authority over. And so in comparison... To hearken back to the civil rights movement and to say they appeal to natural law and God's law with the aim of reforming our civic order in accordance with transcendent standards. To go there is to remind us all of how qualitatively different and of a different spirit and of a different type entirely the so-called civil rights pushes in our day 
are compared with our heritage. And this first few paragraphs, these first four, are right on the nose. I can agree with this statement entirely. The implication, the insinuation, is in denying nature and the authority of God that the powers of this world are the supreme lawgivers. That secularism encourages political absolutism. We are indeed in a perilous position as Christians. From a spiritual standpoint, our souls are in peril. From a physical standpoint, from a mental and an emotional and a social and an economical standpoint, we are in a perilous position. And this line, a society that makes no reference to God implicitly claims that all the goods worth pursuing can be found in this life, is on the nose. For us to say, this is all there is, and let's get to the redistributing, will invariably create hell on earth, and it is in the process of creating hell on earth. So we have the setup, and we also have a tradition to refer back to in how Christians should relate to the perilous situation we find ourselves in. They continue, our social policies must pay homage to the sovereign self, even if it means violating the sanctity of life and denying the moral truth inscribed upon our bodies as male and female. On the other hand, the regime accords our bodies a defining role. Powerful ideologies concerning race, intelligence, and sexual desire insist that we are defined by our biology. This seems a contradiction. A self-chosen identity that denies the authority of the body is privileged alongside an identity politics that accords the body supreme significance. But these two understandings of identity have in common a repudiation of transcendent authority. The expressive self rejects the demands that moral truths place on our freedom. God's creation must not hinder self-creation. Identity politics rejects God's transcendent call and bids us accept our place in the prisons of race, gender, and sexual orientation. In Genesis, we read God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. We are not simply bodies. The human person is stamped by the image of God. But neither are we purely spiritual beings who transcend our physical condition. Our souls animate our bodies, which are formed in accord with the divinely ordained difference between men and women. We are at once capable of transcendence and firmly rooted in God's creation. When political authority no longer serves something deeper, the moral order, or something higher, the promise of transcendence, it becomes sheer power. Liberty becomes grandiose self-invention, an ideal that masks our captivity to anxiety and our vulnerability to social control. In a world unable to acknowledge the laws of nature and nature's God, traditional limits on state power fall away, and without moral authority or divine authority to anchor human affairs, we turn to the state as our only hope, inviting it to become all-powerful in order to hold everything together. As evangelicals and Catholics, we regard our political inheritance as noble. The best of our constitutional and civic traditions draw upon Christian sources. But secularism has spent down the Christian inheritance of the West. It is urgent 
therefore, that we recover a biblical understanding of government and of our duties as citizens. The Christian tradition affirms two sources for the right ordering of human affairs. Temporal authority ensures peace and tranquility in the civil realm, and spiritual authority guides and governs souls toward the end of their salvation in Christ. The two authorities, two swords, as the Christian tradition sometimes puts it, are distinct, but both are required. A political community that does not accord proper scope to political judgments about our temporal well-being becomes a theocratic parody. A society that refuses to acknowledge God's call for us to cleave to him in faith cannot sustain the authority of men and will devolve into enemy and ceaseless struggles for power. So here again, I agree with this. I agree with this. There is a repudiation of transcendent authority at the root of what seem to be otherwise contradictory claims, contradictory understandings. We are called to pay homage to the sovereign self, even if it means violating the sanctity of life and denying the moral truth inscribed upon our bodies as male and female. Denying that morality has anything whatsoever to do with manliness and femininity. And yet, at the same time, the regime, as they say, accords our bodies a defining role. If biology really doesn't matter with regards to male and female, why does it matter so much regarding race or intelligence or sexual desire? The ideological pre-commitments of the left by which they get ever more power for themselves and manipulate people into giving them more and more power and attention and money and representation are hinged on the claim that your physical body is all important. And yet at the same time, it doesn't matter at all what you do to your body or with your body. Supposedly, it doesn't matter how your body is oriented, actually, even because it's your body, it's your choice. Well, wait a second. I thought we were born this way. Which is it? It doesn't have to make sense because it's nonsense. If it's confusing, that's because it is not true. What's really true here is that the common denominator is a rejection of God's authority. That is the common denominator, a rebellion against God's authority. It's not a bug. It's a feature. In fact, it's the whole point. It is the big idea. And yet, for Christians, we have this tradition. We have a political inheritance, as they call it, which we should regard as noble, not as ignoble, not as something to deride, not as something to apologize for, not as something to be embarrassed about, not as something to shirk, not as something to discard or throw away or avoid or bury in a field. Consider the stakes. A society that refuses to acknowledge God's call for us to cleave to him in faith cannot sustain the authority of men. And that's right. That's right. To reject God's authority is also to undo the authority of everyone else. Everyone else that God gives authority to now has to, through acts of naked ambition and sheer terror, command obedience, demand 
submission through threats of violence, through violent actions, through menace, through lies, manipulation. In short, totalitarianism also is the natural consequence of this godlessness. What Xi Jinping is doing in China and what he plans to do with Taiwan, if he can get away with it, is the terminus. That is always the outcome, and not for no reason. They continue. The church is a community in exile. Justin Martyr observes, Christians dwell in the world, but do not belong to the world. We journey as pilgrims toward the final consummation of the created order when Jesus whom the Father has raised from the dead and seated at his right hand, will return in glory with all things under his dominion. Acts 2, 22 through 36, see also Psalm 110. As Christians, therefore, we recognize no worldly authority as ultimate. The words of St. Peter before the priestly council in Jerusalem must serve as the foundation of any Christian understanding of citizenship. We must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29. Our constitutions, governments, civic traditions, and institutions do not operate independent of God's authority. Even now, Jesus is Lord. Human affairs are ordered in God's providence toward their final end in Christ, to whom all things have been made subject. Christians cannot accept the secular conceit that the legitimacy of government stems solely from a social contract or the consent of the governed. However useful such concepts may be as part of a fully developed political theology, St. Paul is unequivocal, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, Romans 13.1. The particular purposes for which God has instituted temporal authority are not transparent to our understanding. We are not privy to God's designs. As believers, we must resist shallow judgments that too quickly baptize or demonize political movements and public personalities. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Romans 11.34, Isaiah 40.13. Moreover, the church has functioned in a remarkable variety of regimes. There is no Christian system of government. Nevertheless, Scripture and the Christian tradition offer a general account of the legitimate purposes of civil authority. After insisting that every person is rightly subject to governing authority, St. Paul explains that governmental authority is ordained by God for the sake of restraining sin. Civil authorities exist to promote good conduct and punish bad conduct. They bear the sword of coercion as agents of God's judgment against the actions of wrongdoers chastising the wicked. This is an important office. A society that fails to deter murder, theft, and other crimes does not deserve our loyalty. This does not mean that a regime must be perfect insofar as wrongdoing is prohibited and grave transgressions of the moral law are not overlooked. We must provide our support according the respect and honor due to civil authority. Romans 13, 4-7. The first letter of Peter makes a similar argument. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do wrong and praise those who do right, 2, 13 through 15. Now, there's a bit here that I want to maybe challenge, push back on. Maybe I just don't quite trust it. They say, as believers, we need to resist 
shallow judgments that too quickly baptize or demonize political movements and public personalities. I don't think that the passages they're citing, Romans 11.34, Isaiah 40.13, necessarily make this point, but that could be my own ignorance. I don't think saying who has known the mind of the Lord means we reserve judgment. I do think we should resist shallow judgments, but that's somewhat subjective. It's a relative judgment even in and of itself to say resist shallow judgments. Well, what is a shallow judgment? That too quickly baptize or demonize political movements and public personalities. Well, what is too quickly? How quick is too quick? How slow is too slow also, for that matter? You can operate up in the platosphere, but at a certain point, you're going to have to come down to the rubber meeting the road. And ultimately, since we're talking about law enforcement and restraining sin, take, for instance, a law enforcement officer, a police officer, a cop who's actually going to be the one confronting the guy about which they've just received a call of a disturbance or a domestic violence incident or a murder even, worst case scenario. That cop cannot too slowly recognize the threat posed to him and others by a suspect. Yes, I agree. We should not too quickly baptize or demonize. And yet I would caution, I don't trust this fully because academics, theologians, philosophers, people who live in the platosphere, as you might call it, make their hay thinking very slowly. And yet there is a time and a place for thinking quickly on your feet and in a timely manner. Also, too, another thing I want to put some qualifiers into, there is no Christian system of government, they say. And I would push back on that. I am not for saying Christians can embrace any political system, any political philosophy whatsoever. It's all the same. It's not. I don't believe in our current climate that Christians can be communists. I don't believe you can join the Communist Party, be a part of the Communist Party as a Christian, full stop. I don't believe you can join the Democratic Party either as a Christian. Not unless you're going to repent of it, but then that is to say, it's the job of Christian leaders to say, you can't, you can't. This is ungodly. I would refer here to Os Guinness, who I believe is one of the original signatories to evangelicals and Catholics together. In his book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, he makes some interesting observations about the form of government that God gave to ancient Israel not really being a theocracy, as many people mistakenly suppose. It wasn't, first and foremost, rule of priests. It was rule of law under God. In other words, it was a republic. So I actually would disagree with this. I would say, I think Christians should be for Republican form governments. And within that, you say, even if you're going to have a king, there's a whole world of difference between Lex Rex and Rex Lex. Is the law king or is the king the law? On the one hand, you'll get George Washington. On the other hand, you'll get Napoleon Bonaparte or you'll get Xi Jinping or you'll get Joseph Stalin or you'll get Fidel Castro. It makes a wide world of difference. So I actually do think, and it's not to say 
that the system of government is going to look identical from one republic to the next, to the next, to the next. But I actually increasingly, the more I study, the more I read, the more I think on these things, I am increasingly convinced that there is a Christian system of government and it is the republic. And that is not to say it's all law in the abstract. No, but even where you might have, for instance, in the American tradition, thanks to the founding fathers, three branches. You can have laws that lay down the checks and balances of a legislative, executive, and judicial branch to where not all the power is concentrated in any one person or body of people. There's no real security in putting all your power into, let's say, a House of Representatives or a Senate. If you only need one ruthless character like Xi Jinping to remove a would-be leader of opposition that would provide a check on corruption or depravity or tyranny or, more to the point, lawlessness on the part of you. So I'm going to push back on some of these things. I do think that the Christian system of government is Republican, and it can have democratic elements. That's fine. You could even have a king in a republic, but the king still must be subject to the laws of God. That's the big idea. That's the big idea with Samuel Rutherford's book, Lex Rex. And that is to say as well, it's of a piece with some of these other statements, which I full-throatedly, wholeheartedly, with all my being, agree with. As Christians, therefore, they say, we recognize no worldly authority is ultimate. Absolutely. They also say our constitutions, governments, civic traditions, and institutions do not operate independent of God's authority. Absolutely. Even now, Jesus is Lord. Amen. Christians cannot accept the secular conceit that the legitimacy of government stems solely from a social contract or the consent of the governed. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. But that must require a Republican form of government if you're going to refer back to natural law or God's law. It just has to. It has to. Repeat after me, God says. And if our institutions, if our government won't, well, then it's being lawless, period, to the extent that it refuses to repeat after God regarding right and wrong. They say also, and I agree with this 100%, insofar as wrongdoing is prohibited and grave transgressions of the moral law are not overlooked, we must provide our support according the respect and honor due to civil authority. Amen. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 13, as they point out. That's 100% right. Continuing on, God has given the power of the temporal sword to those who rule so that wrongdoing is met with firm rebuke and the wicked do not lead others astray. History has seen governments that rage against God's law. If the rule of law perversely turns against morality and justice, civil disobedience may be required and even rebellion may be justified. But if temporal power is used properly, Christians are called to be the most loyal of citizens Christians need not be blind to the injustices that characterize all regimes in our fallen world. We may be active in efforts of reform, yet when the temporal sword seeks to honor God's intentions, however imperfectly, we must not foster rebellion or simmering dissent. Now, I want to push back on this a bit also from having considered. I actually think Burke was onto something in rejecting revolutions categorically and rejecting rebellion categorically. And I understand, you know, what we mean by revolution, rebellion differs 
widely, and a lot of folks don't even read this into it, but I think it would be helpful for us to be instructed to read this into any mention of rebellion and revolution. If what is called by some rebellion or revolution is to be legitimate, it cannot actually be rebellion and revolution. It has to actually be a restoration of our submission to authority, namely God's authority. Take, for instance, a situation in which a soldier may be given an unlawful order by a superior officer, and yet they know, they know that to be an unlawful order. They are required by U.S. law to not follow the order of their superior officer. When they disobey an unlawful order, because a higher law, a higher authority, let's say the U.S. Constitution, for instance, or laws passed by Congress, prevent them from obeying the order of a superior officer, they are not lawless, and they're not in rebellion. Now, if we just use insincere, disingenuous references to there being a higher law or a higher order or a higher authority to be disobedient, God knows and will repay. But I think in the interest of clarity to provide a check against that temptation in some hearts to actually rebel and carry out revolutions in a way that would not honor God or the temptation in other hearts to maintain a stubborn neutrality which would disobey a higher call, a higher authority in the interest of keeping the peace with a lower level authority. I think we should avoid this talk of rebellion and revolution. It's not qualified enough. It opens it up. It, it opens us up to hazard, moral hazard. They continue. Restraint of sin allows civil authority to secure the good of peace. As Augustine makes clear, the peace of the earthly city does not rest in the harmony of wills that comes about when we honor and worship God in one accord. This peace is found only in the city of God, when love of God has conquered love of self. In our pilgrimage toward that end, we can experience a foretaste of this peace most often in the life of the church, but also in civil affairs. When we join together to achieve common ends. But Christians recognize the limits of political ambition. We accept that we must function in political, economic, and social structures that presume a preponderance of self-love. Often, the only realistic alternative is to moderate the destructive effects of self-love by a kind of compromise between human wills. And there they quote, City of God, the well-regulated marketplace can control greed. The rule of law can constrain the powerful. The pain of want, if allowed in proper circumstances, can motivate the indolent. As St. Paul reminds the Thessalonians, for even when we were with you, we gave you this command, if anyone will not work, let him not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. So we see here a framework for Christian political philosophy, which is so important. This is what they're talking about. When they say that we have a noble inheritance. It is not to say that a well-regulated marketplace will completely eliminate greed from the human heart. It is not to say that the rule of law will always perfectly constrain the powerful from being cruel or totalitarian or tyrannical. 
It's not to say that the pain of want, if allowed in proper circumstances, will always motivate the indolent, but it is to say these can, and we should expect them to, we should plan for them to, and we should order our lives and our political institutions accordingly, instead of interfering with the proper function of these restraints. We should recognize the limits of political ambition and not confuse our categories. The restraint of sin is a good and legitimate, God-honoring, God-instituted feature of civil authority. Securing the good of peace here on earth in an earthly sense, in the earthly city, is a legitimate good that God desires and he has put people in authority to achieve for our benefit and for his glory. Too often, they write, modern Christians chafe against the limits of earthly peace. And I love this next section. I love it. And it's very, very important that we pay attention to this. We undervalue its relative good, disparaging it in comparison to the ideal of true harmony and integral solidarity that characterizes the city of God. Some fall into theologized activism, urging the inauguration of the new Jerusalem here and now. But the church is the sole custodian of God's heavenly peace that passes all understanding, not governments, constitutions, civic institutions, or legal traditions. A failure to recognize the limits of earthly peace can lead to the exasperated refusal to countenance God's delay of the final consummation. The result is a social Pelagianism, a political works righteousness that seeks to confect heavenly peace out of human movements, ideologies, and efforts. Some of the greatest crimes of the modern era have been committed by those who imagined themselves capable of transcending through social engineering and revolution, the mediocrity of the earthly city, which is always hobbled by self-love. So what is this saying? Essentially, because we as Christians, too often, too many of us as modern Christians, chafe against, stubbornly discontent ourselves with the limits of earthly peace, the finitude of earthly peace, we have an all-or-nothing approach to it. An all-or-nothing mindset feeds into an all-or-nothing approach. If it can't be perfect, we want no part of it. If it's not total and complete and eternal right now, immediately, I don't want it. I don't need it. Get it out of here. But this is a failure on our part. It's a failure. And it also represents, as they say, and this is an interesting turn of phrase, an exasperated refusal to countenance God's delay of the final consummation, which is to say, in some sense, we're finding fault with God. We are not content with our lot, with what he has put us here and left us here and sustained us here right now to do and to be about. It's interesting, too, they draw this in in both directions. On the one hand, in a very active way, a discontentedness in an active way looks like utopian drives for, really, communism. And in the other direction, as opting out, refusing to be engaged. We call it conservatism, but it really might be inactivism. <laughs> we have in the one hand activism, and we have in the other hand inactivism, and both alike 
our kind of discontentedness with what God has put us here to be about right now, what he's given us the capacity to do, what he's called us to do. Continuing on, we wash our hands of the sin-infected institutions that govern society, insisting that our civic covenants make no legitimate claims upon our soul. Like the zealous social activist, the Christian purist often makes correct judgments about the inadequacy of even the best governments. Augustine observes that as the peace of the earthly city rests in the absence of violence, it is not a true peace. But we must not scoff at the negative peace of the earthly city. Rather, as Augustine teaches, we are called to make good use of the relative tranquility of a well-ordered society, neither disturbing it with utopian dreams nor spurning our duty to honor and protect its limited but genuine goods. And boy, howdy, is that a double-edged sword that cuts both ways. Or what? I think here of a quote from C.S. Lewis. In Mere Christianity, he says, the devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites, and he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is the worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. The devil always sends errors into the world in pairs. Boy, is that relevant to our political dysfunction. Our different traditions have different views of the degree to which faithful Christians can exercise the office of the magistrate. Some of us believe that a life of discipleship forbids the use of lethal force, which backstops civil authority. But we agree that civil authority is ordained by God. And we agree that our commitment to the triumph of Christ's peace need not contradict our loyalty to the civic order, however imperfect that order may be. God institutes government and invests its officers with a sword of coercion for more than the restraint of sin. In explicit laws and informal social mores, we are guided to honor that which deserves to be honored. Good government has an interest in forming the souls of those under its dominion. To govern in accord with God's purposes is to teach. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority, writes St. Paul? Then do what is good, and you will have his approval, Romans 13.3. Those who rule must promote virtue, not just in and through the majesty of the law, but by supporting institutions that teach good habits and inculcate noble sentiments marriage, domestic life, schools, community organizations, and more. Calvin wrote that God has ordained secular authority to serve as protectors and vindicators of public innocence, modesty, decency, and tranquility, and that this end cannot be achieved unless due honor has been prepared for virtue institutes. Modern liberalism often promotes the dangerous falsehood that the best society must be indifferent to the true ends of the human person, caring only for rights and not concerning itself with virtues. This notion is both unworkable and unjust. The negative piece of society requires a settled order, and every kind of order organizes actions, beliefs, and sentiments toward particular ends. Liberalism invariably seeks ends, A social order is liberal insofar as those ends are modest rather than heroic. Imminent concerns about security of our persons and property, freedoms of speech, association, and assembly in the civic realm, economic growth, and material progress. 
whether this modesty is wise is questionable. As Augustine famously noted, our hearts are restless. We seek transcendence, and thus it is imprudent to deprive our social order of ambitious ends such as communal solidarity, honoring a shared heritage, celebrating heroic virtue, and serving God. Christians can certainly adopt the concepts of individual rights and limited government, but appeals to political neutrality with respect to the good rest on a false conceit. Every regime engages in soulcraft the liberal regime no less than non-liberal alternatives. The low spiritual ambitions of the liberal political tradition cannot be sustained in the absence of non-liberal traditions and institutions, which leaven society with heroic ideals that speak to the human desire for transcendence. Now, what's he saying here? Well, for one thing, and this is why we got married, and this is why we had children, and this is why we homeschool, and this is why we go to church. You cannot, you cannot only focus on the material. You cannot only focus on, don't touch my stuff. Your rights end where my nose begins. You can't just stop there. We have to talk about virtue. Not just rights. We have to talk about virtue. Good government will promote virtue. According to Paul. In Romans 13, in fact, government, tries it might, cannot help but promote virtue, or at least make claims about virtue, whether it is actually virtuous, what is being promoted. There is a claim of promoting virtue and punishing vice in rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil. As they point out, liberalism seeks ends. We're concerned about our body, our choice. Our private property, our freedom to speak what we want to say, associate with who we want to assemble and grow our economy. But that can't survive on its own. That's half the equation. That's not enough. They continue. John Paul II often insisted that the Christian faith, if lived authentically, nurtures a profound wisdom about what it means to be human. As experts in humanity, we are called to encourage and guide government policy and social development toward a greater and more perfect formation of character among our fellow citizens. In our council to leaders, involvement in elections, and activism in civil society, we must always maintain a judicious awareness of the fallibility of sin-infected reason and the force of self-love. This awareness should moderate our ardor and make us generous to our political adversaries, But the proper liberality of our witness cannot be an excuse for failing to propose and advocate for laws and mores that accord with a Christian understanding of human dignity. Yeah, yes, right, absolutely, amen, amen. Humility cannot become a stand-in for relativism, know-nothingism, the rejection of truth, the neglecting of responsibility, the failure to act. The burying of talents in a field. Yes, we should be more generous, more gracious, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry in our political discourse and debate and engagement. But you can't hide behind live and let live as an excuse. It's no excuse at all for failing to call your neighbor, the city, the state, the nation, to a Christian understanding of human dignity 
worth, value, importance, responsibility. Now, we're halfway through, and I am not going to read the whole thing. As I said, you can read all of it on your own. I would encourage you to. Some things I want to highlight for you, though, from here through the end, we'll go through them fairly quickly. For one, they say, in the earthly city, we have a duty to seek to implement those laws, norms, and institutions that show promise of guiding citizens toward virtue and promoting a more just and equitable society. And this word equitable just means the quality of being fair and impartial, according to Oxford languages. We should be impartial in the administration of justice. Social justice cannot be a watchword, a byword, a stand-in for redistribution of other people's wealth. The scriptures are not silent on that. They're not mysterious. Theft is theft. Calvin is quoted, No government can be happily established unless piety is the first concern, which is to say, religion is a duty, a responsibility, an imperative, absolutely. A wise legislator, they say, seeks to conserve important practices, including those that promote the virtue of religion. And this I get a little bit uncomfortable with because it could be a utilitarian Machiavellian thing, and that's not so good, but there can be a good way in which this is meant. Don't trample on people's religious liberty, scoff at it, mock it, persecute it. If they're abstaining from certain things, that they have no objective duty to affirm, participate in, celebrate, reward, that's virtuous of them. And it's not virtuous to punish them for it, to deride them for it. Continuing on, insofar as these Temporal goods are proclaimed as our highest and final ends. The sword wielded by civil authority, which governs the temporal realm, knows no limit. Here again, they're emphasizing the point that a purely materialistic approach to governance, evaluating the worth of individuals, will result invariably in totalitarianism. A society, they say, that does not encourage the virtue of religion, the habits and sentiments that cause men to see and seek fulfillment in something that transcends our mortal frame will tend toward tyranny. That's an apt point. They also delve in, and I won't go into the details, but they delve into the need to distinguish between encouragement and compulsion. There are ways to propose, incentivize virtue. And all this nonsense about the separation of church and state is just that. It's nonsense. Where even the mention of God, of Christ, of the Ten Commandments, of the Bible, is taken as a violation of the separation of church and state. No, 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 no. Do remind people of God's authority. Obviously, given that our founding documents refer to nature and nature's God and our maker and our creator and our judge, the mention of God and his law is not, was not, will never be a violation of just, fair, good government. Further down, they say, guided by wise judgment, it is fitting for Christians to urge civil authority 
to sustain a public square congenial to the proclamation of the gospel. Amen. And this is also part of why I'm thrilled if Elon Musk wants to fire 75% of the Twitter workforce. I know that I know that I know that they are censoring conservatives online and they're censoring Christians. And very often the two are a very closely overlapping, not perfectly overlapping Venn diagram. Further down, the Leviathan, and here they mean the totalitarian state, makes gospel promises. Only the state can keep us safe. Only the state can guarantee freedom. Only the state can secure equality. Only the state can restore our unity and guard our heritage. Only the state can provide for all our needs. Hear this. Go read Machen, Christianity and Liberalism. This is a false gospel. This is the golden image of the king. And when the bell rings, when the trumpets sound, bow down and worship the golden image of the king. It is government as God. And it's a real problem in the soul of this country and in the souls of a lot of our countrymen and in the souls of a lot of folks who say they are Christians. These are gospel promises. These are evangelion competing claims of the kind Caesar is Lord versus Jesus is Lord represented in the early church. These movements, and here they're talking about utopian social movements, eager to usher in the perfect peace of true concord. These movements usurp God's role as the author of our final consummation by claiming to serve history, science, humanity, progress, or some other supposedly supreme authority. And essentially what's being created then is a pantheon, a conceptual pantheon, perhaps, but a pantheon nonetheless. All of those things belong to God, were made by him, and have to be received with thanksgiving and handled with a due reverence for God. And yet the secular state, the liberal modern order, has this one thing, this one pre-commitment that undergirds all its claims, all of its moves, all its decisions, all of its positions, that we will not engage in those spaces with reverence for God. Not if we want to be allowed to stay. We will be escorted from the hall like Hu Jintao, even though we were sitting next to Xi Jinping. A little while later, a little further down, they continue, although prudence requires us to adapt to circumstances, Christian political witness can be pursued under any type of government, righteous or unrighteous. Christ exercises his lordship at every moment in history. And that's true. That's true. Which is to say, even if ours is totally corrupt, totally repressive, totally godless, totally wicked, we can still and should bring a Christian testimony, Christian witness to bear publicly in a meaningful way. Christ is Lord right now. Are we talking like it? Are we acting like it? Are we engaging like it? Again, I totally agree with this sentiment. Further on, further down, further in, the hostility of transcendence empowers the political Leviathan to restructure society to serve this worldly gods. And they talk about the COVID pandemic required civil authorities to make decisions under pressure with limited knowledge and how in some jurisdictions, church attendance, religious observance was deemed non-essential for a long period of time. 
and what, by contrast, was said then to be the highest good, our highest good, is our physical health. That's a kind of teaching. That's a kind of moral instruction. That is a claim being made about transcendence and about God and about man and about our ontology and our spiritual well-being, that it's non-essential. It's not important. We don't recognize it. And then they draw this conclusion. We risk a similar subordination of higher goods to lower goods as our societies increasingly organize themselves around self-determination, inclusion, and material well-being. And this really brings it home, I think, for a lot of Christians. They say their reasons are philosophical or theological, but at root, it's a spiritual war that's going on inside of them. It's an ordering of priorities. It's an ordering of affections. Do they love God's word? Do they love God more than this disembodied ideal of self-determination? I do what I want. Inclusion. Everybody come on in. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your background is. I don't care how you live. I don't care what you believe. I don't care. Like everybody all in. Which, by the way, can I just say, when we revisit evangelicals and Catholics together as an organization, how it founded some of the criticisms against it, dating back to 1994, we are going to pick back up on this question of inclusion and us organizing around inclusion. Because they have some questions that they need to answer, or which I need to find answers for anyways, with regards to what they're about what they're predicated on, but also material well-being. If you're afraid of losing your job, and so you're not going to speak up for what's true, you're not going to say anything that might get you canceled, might get you reported to your boss, might get back to your coworkers over Facebook, and then they report you to HR because they feel unsafe being around you. If you're afraid of losing your job, your home, your vehicle, your friends, your freedom, and that keeps you from providing a Christian testimony in our political climate, in our social circumstance, that's the peril that we are in as Christians. That's the sole peril we are in, is that we would give in to the temptations to prioritize everything else in this list over obedience to God. And yet they say further down, union with God in faith is alone the highest good. And I'm skipping a little bit, but then they pick it back up. They say, for this reason, the freedom, the first freedom— in a well-governed society, must be religious freedom. Must be. Not can be, if you want, sometimes, occasionally. No, it must be. The first reason that this has to be the first freedom is that it's the highest good. Not because it sounds nice. Not because it's the flavor of the month and you just happen to be fresh off of a story of someone's religious liberty being trampled on. No, no, it needs to be always the first freedom in a well-governed society. And we need to argue for it. We need to advocate for it. We need to know why that is. Attaining this good, they say, in the sentence that I skipped over, frees us from bondage to idols, allowing us to seek the relative goods of physical well-being, social tranquility, and authentic self-possession, in the right ways, which is to say these are all good things in the proper context, in the proper order, subordinated to union with God and faith. 
These are good things that we are for. And because we want them to be preserved and not destroyed by us ourselves, like Christopher Hitchens talks about with regards to Saddam Hussein and pure evil, actual evil, real evil, whether he's right about evil or not, I tend to agree a bit more with Augustine about the diminution of the good. Both could be correct because Hitchens points out with regards to Saddam Hussein, there gets to be this point at which evil can't be evil enough and it becomes its own end. It stops being a means to the end of getting something else and it becomes an end unto itself. And then it ultimately destroys itself. It ultimately commits suicide. It destroys everything just for the sake of destroying, for the fun of destruction, for the fun of cruelty. And in the end, with nothing left to destroy, it destroys itself. And this, in a certain sense, agrees with Augustine. But that is to say as well, in putting these other things first, we actually start a countdown on their destruction. When we prioritize self-determination first, highest, most, then even when somebody is telling us, hey, get out of the way, there's a Mack truck barreling down on you and you're going to get flattened here, we say, oh, I'm not going anywhere just because you told me to move. And that's the end of us. Not much self-determination going on now, now that you've been run over by the Mack truck. Inclusion. Oh, everybody's included. Really? Or what? Or we'll exclude you. Ah, well, I guess your inclusion can't be sustained then. Material well-being. How much material well-being do folks have in jurisdictions where there is no law? Cops are not allowed to pursue gangs of dirt bike riding brick throwers as they assault them because there's no policy in place because the defund the police movement was predicated on critical race theory and a bogus accusation and slander against the United States of America that racism is in our DNA. Our former president, abominable Barack abominable said that racism is in our DNA. It's just who we are. We can't help it. Speaking of born this way, not much material well-being when a coordinated group of looters can come into your store and as long as they take each individually less than $1,000, you can't stop them or you'll get fired and you can't call the cops because the cops aren't allowed to pursue them or arrest them or detain them. You get 10 of your best friends together, you each carry $999 worth of stuff out You've got $10,000 worth of merchandise. That store owner, how's his material well-being going? He might have enthusiastically supported this whole idea of defund the police, but look at him now. It can't be sustained. Last, this is the final quote on the last page. And I disagree with this. I don't think this follows. There might have been a time where I would have shrugged and said, ah, yeah, sure. But I I actually don't think so anymore. There will be no need for governments, courts, and other institutions, human institutions, when Christ returns in glory, they say in their last paragraph. I I don't know that that follows, actually. And I credit Alex Cassetta 
in our discussions back and forth about hell and whether it's eternal conscious torment or whether it, my words, not his, is a kind of uh, purgatory or it sounds an awful lot like what I know purgatory to be in the Catholic conception. When there's this talk of the kings and nations bringing their glory into the city and yet no one corrupts, no evil person being allowed in, no sin being allowed in the city. How does that follow unless the kings and the nations have been cleansed maybe in the lake of fire before they're allowed in? As I said in our episode about hell, I think it makes more sense that we actually are looking at kings and nations in the kingdom come. I think that makes more sense. I think that's more probable. And of course, if I'm right about there actually being a Christian system of government and it being republicanism, those kings will rule over nations in the new creation that are republics and they'll be distinct republics. And you can travel back and forth and around freedom and safety and security and harmony will not at all conflict with there being diversity. And that'll all be glorious and glorify God together in the hereafter eternally. I think that sounds great. I think that sounds really super cool, actually. I'm I'm not worried about courts. We won't need courts of law to adjudicate. But yet, as the authors of this piece point out, there are two roles for government, according to what Paul writes in Romans 13. Not just to punish those who do evil, that's where your courts would come in, but also to reward those who do good and to teach and to instruct. We don't suddenly become infinite in the hereafter. We become perfect and sinless, really truly, but we don't become infinite. So I have no problem with us still learning things, gaining skills even, working as unto the Lord but not in a toilsome way, not in a way that's affected by the curse, the way that our work is affected now. I have no problem at all conceiving of the kingdom come being a place where the those who do good are rewarded. They won't have to worry about national defense and things like that, but if there is any good work to do in the hereafter and it needs to be ordered and organized and coordinated in any measure, why not have good government, honoring and glorifying God under Christ the King forever. Why not? Still, on the whole, I agree with much of what is in this statement by evangelicals and Catholics together. I put some qualifiers, which I'll delve more into when we return to the topic of their original statement that kind of formed this group. The signers of that statement founded the group, if you will, But for right now, it's a Saturday, and my wife is telling me I've got some coffee cake waiting for me when I'm wrapped up here. That sounds really good. Coffee cake and a refill on my coffee and maybe even some Civilization VI. It's a beautiful fall day, resting, regaining my strength before I start a new job on Monday. Sounds like a good idea. Sounds like wisdom and prudence to me. But let me know what you think. If you've got some questions, comments, objections, concerns, hit me up. If you think I'm missing something on any of these points that I agree with or that I disagree with or I have some pushback on, uh, if you've got some more information, insight, observations, 
let me know. And uh, also, too, again, hit subscribe if you haven't already. You can get alerts when we do future episodes talking more about this and related things. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.